If you would please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Today is Palm Sunday. It is the beginning of Holy Week, which culminates with Easter. As I read Luke's account to you, I think you'll probably be familiar with many of the events that that he describes. I'll put it in four parts. But some of them you may not have thought of as happening on Palm Sunday. When we take them all together, I suspect we will come up with a very different view of Palm Sunday. As one preacher put it, you could say that Palm Sunday is the Trojan horse of the Christian calendar. We get lured in by the festivity, but before we know it, we are being assaulted by the long dramatic reading of the Passion. Palm Sunday is not a day unto itself. Palm Sunday is the introduction to Holy Week. We should keep that in mind. Let's begin by looking at verse number 28, the preparations for what we know as the Last Supper, or, I'm sorry, preparations for the entry into Jerusalem. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. Jesus and his disciples are now approaching Jerusalem. They're in Bethphage, the house of figs on the Mount of Olives, and he sends two disciples ahead and tells them, he gives them instructions. You're going to go into this town and you're going to find a donkey uh, with her colt. You're to untie them and bring them to Jesus, bring them to me. And if anybody asks, what are you doing? Say, the Lord needs this. And what we see in this is that Jesus has authority. He is the Lord. And he says, the Lord needs this. And so it is assumed that the owner of these animals would, in fact, let them go. How did Jesus know about the donkeys? Well, some have suggested that this shows his deity and his authority. Um, That, in fact, may be the case. I won't argue it. But I think we have something much more definite that shows the authority of Jesus here in that he says the Lord needs it. Jesus takes for himself a title normally uh, reserved for God. Jesus doesn't say, I am the Lord, but rather the Lord needs them and bring them to me. And yet, this isn't merely about him having authority. He doesn't say, get me those donkeys, tell anyone who bothers me it's for the Lord. Rather, it is tell them that the Lord needs them. One would expect if you are the Lord, if you're a person of great authority, you don't need anything. And you don't need to ask permission, if you wish. You want something, you tell someone, go get it and bring it to me. But here we hear the humility of Jesus. He is one of authority, but also one of humility. He speaks of need. Um, By the way, there's a very specific reason for this incident, the way that it is arranged. Um, 
Jesus wants to make it clear, and it should be clear to us, that he is not proclaimed Messiah by others. If you remember in John chapter 6, Jesus withdrew because he knew that the crowd had come and they wanted to make him king. Well, as this story is arranged, it is Jesus in authority who says, get me the donkeys. But then there's humility, he says, the Lord needs them. And now he is prepared to make his entry into Jerusalem. Look, if you would, beginning at verse number 36. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes to, down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The crowds announce him. They rejoice, they shout, they say, Hosanna. It's a Hebrew expression that originally was a cry for help. Save us. It's a cry for help. But later it becomes an invocation of blessing, that God, in fact, will bring salvation. In Psalm 118, O Lord, save us, O Lord, grant us success. There is Hosanna. There's a time when we should say Hosanna, and the crowd does. But if you look at Psalm 118, in the very next verse after we read of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's great excitement. This is Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah. God is going to save us, the crowd cries out. Hosanna in the highest. By the way, this may remind you of what we read in Luke chapter 2 as the angels announced to the shepherds that Jesus has been born. There is joy because here comes the king. He has authority. He will save. He will deliver. Um, I would point out that there's a different emphasis here in Luke's account versus what we find in Matthew's account. Um, In Matthew, he tells us that this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew quotes there from Zechariah chapter 9, but not the entire verse. He leaves out at least one line, and the line is righteous and having salvation. Well, Luke tells us of salvation because of the word Hosanna. Jesus comes as the king. We could talk about why Matthew leads it out, but I think that would only be speculation. The reality is, in this event, we see Jesus as having authority as the king, as the one who brings salvation, but also as one who is humble. I find it interesting, and I've mentioned this before, that the church generally refers to this event as the triumphal entry. Um, Some Bibles have this heading. I think Matthew and Luke would prefer for us to see it as a modest entry. He comes in on a donkey, not on a white horse like Alexander the Great did when he entered Jerusalem. Jesus comes in on a donkey. Luke has a different emphasis, though, and I don't know if you caught it, but the crowd began joyfully to praise God for all the miracles they had seen. Without being cynical, could it be that... They hope to see more miracles. 
Passover is a time when Jews from all over the world come to Jerusalem to celebrate and perhaps they've heard of this prophet from up in Galilee, from Nazareth, that he is able to perform miracles, to heal people. And now, hopefully, they will see another miracle in their own life and thus they praise God. But it could also, if we're not so cynical, it could be that they remembered what Passover was all about when God miraculously delivered Israel out of Egypt, when Moses and Aaron uh, brought various plagues on the Egyptians, then they crossed through the Red Sea. Maybe this man will be the second Moses, and he will do something and bring deliverance for Israel. He will deliver them from a foreign power just as Moses did. Now look, if you would, at verses 46 through 48. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. For the second time in Jesus' ministry, he cleanses the temple. The first time happens in John chapter 2. It's at the beginning of his earthly ministry. Interestingly enough, both incidents at the beginning, at the end of his ministry, happen during the time of Passover. This is when the Jews uh, come into Jerusalem, and so the temple area must just be packed with people. And Jesus, on both occasions, cleanses the temple. Um, What he finds is offensive to him I'm not so sure that it would be offensive to the other people and maybe not even to us. Because there in the temple area are people selling animals for sacrifice and they are money changers. They are exchanging various currencies for the temple tax. Every male had to pay temple tax and it had to be in a particular type of coinage. And if you're coming from Italy or from uh, Asia Minor or from Greece, you wouldn't have that currency. So you change it so you can go in and pay the temple tax. With regard to selling animals, again, if I come from Rome, let's say for the sake of argument, I have animals with me without blemish that I'm going to take to the temple area. You know, maybe by the time I get to Jerusalem, they have blemishes. I mean, what are the chances that they're going to make it to Jerusalem blemish-free? And I might think they're blemish-free, but the priest may not agree. So isn't it better if I sell the animals I have carry the money with me, go to Jerusalem, and then I buy an animal in the temple area that's been pre-approved by the priest. The priest has said, this animal is good for sacrifice. So these people are, in fact, providing, I would say, a necessary service. Um, And then again, I mentioned the the exchanging of money. Every Jewish male over the age of 20 was to give a one-half shekel in Old Testament terms for the temple tax. What is the problem? Well, in John there's one problem and I think a, a second problem in Luke. The first problem is they set up their businesses in the temple area reserved for the Gentiles. As much as to say, only the Jews should bother coming to the temple and all the Gentiles Yeah, there's no place for you because we have all the animals and the money changers are there. And there were Gentiles who worshipped God. That's why you have the court of the Gentiles. But in many ways, they are 
they're not allowed to come in because of all the animals that are there. But in Luke's account, it isn't them crowding out the court of the Gentiles. It is the corruption that they have made the temple area a den of robbers. Apparently there was funny business going on with the exchange perhaps of currency, the selling of animals. Um, It very well could be that the priest got their cut of the whole thing. So it became big business and a corrupt business as well. They have transformed what is supposed to be a place of prayer into a place of not simply business, but of theft. When Jesus does this, by the way, he stands firmly in the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament, and that's all that they had back then. They didn't have the New Testament. And so when Jesus does this, interestingly enough, the chief priests and the scribes and the, the merchants, they are offended, but the other the people, the crowd, the masses, they hung on every word because Jesus is just like what they remember the prophets being in what we call the Old Testament. There are at least two features that we find in Old Testament prophets. First of all, we find the message that God is angry with his people, and rightly so, because they pay more attention to the rituals, to the form of worship, than they do to right behavior before God. Just make sure your animal's without blemish. doesn't matter if you rip off the person you're selling it to. Just make sure you do the right forms. And we find this in the Old Testament, that God, in spite of his patience and loving kindness, is angry at his people because of how they have approached worship. In the first chapter of Isaiah, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have had more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feast my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Another place in Isaiah, which is more familiar to us, I think, because Jesus quotes it in Isaiah 29. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. And then one other place in Amos. I hate, I despise your religious feast. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. So when Jesus cleanses a temple, people must have been thinking, this is just like Isaiah, this is just like Amos. Here is someone who speaks with authority in the prophetic tradition. But there's a second feature that we should not ignore. And that is that God is not simply opposed to this perversion of his worship. He's going to do something about it. There will be judgment. 
In Jeremiah 7, while you are doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your brothers, the people of Ephraim. God's going to do something about it. cannot imagine that God will just continually be angry and then and never do anything about it. He will, in fact, do something about it. But, you know, human nature being what it is, if God does not act immediately, if a parent does not act immediately upon making a threat, it, the threat seems to be pushed to the background. And, yeah, that's just God talking and he's not really going to do something about it. They are often forgotten, but these words are never lost. And we hear them in Jesus as he goes to the temple. Now Jesus is in the temple. It is Passover. The temple is filled with pilgrims who have traveled to be in Jerusalem and celebrate Passover, but also to worship in the temple. And this cannot be what they imagined they would find, a place of business and even shady business in which people are being ripped off by merchants. So Jesus drives them out. What's going on? This man who speaks in the prophetic tradition that is often forgotten but never lost, yeah, people get it and they hang on his words. In Malachi 3, which we studied recently, we read, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So the messenger is coming, the Messiah is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Here is the prophetic word in action. Jesus is cleansing the temple. It's important. I want to make it clear. Jesus doesn't lose his temper. Uh, some people have taken this as, oh, look, Jesus loses his temper. He is just like us. Um, no, what we hear is Jesus announcing that he is Lord of the temple, that he is the one who has come to cleanse the temple, and he is the one who is going to purify temple worship with refiner's fire. Now, fire, you know, not buffing, you know, not polishing the silver, so to speak. This is putting silver in fire and getting rid of all those things, all the dross, all the impurities that are there. So this is what we see on Palm Sunday. But you may have noticed that I skipped a certain passage. Look, if you would, at verse number 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I read this past week of someone who remarked that he had been to a local shopping center and he saw there at a store that sold cards and gifts 
they had a sign in the window that said, we make Easter easy. No doubt they're talking about all the things that people want to buy, somehow associated quite wrongly with Easter. That's another sermon. Um, But the reality is we want Easter to be easy. We don't want to talk about the events of Holy Week, uh, his passion, his suffering, even the crucifixion of Jesus. Palm Sunday is okay. It's more upbeat. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, it is the Trojan horse of the Christian calendar, in part because we forget or, or we overlook what we just read in these four verses. This not only opens the door to Holy Week, it kicks it open. Holy Week is upon us. Only two times in the Gospels are we told that Jesus wept. Um, this is one. The other is more familiar. When Lazarus died and uh, Martha and Mary take him to the tomb of Lazarus. But here Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. What was Jerusalem? What was God's city or it was supposed to be? It had a long history, however, of disobedience and disappointment. It had abandoned its holy calling to be the place of God. For centuries, God had been preparing them for the coming of the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer. And now at last the Messiah has come and they don't get it. They do not recognize the time of the Lord's visitation. And they will in a few days execute him in a thoroughly degrading way. They will hang him from a tree, a cross, which in the Old Testament tells us that he is cursed. But Jesus does not weep for himself. He weeps for Jerusalem. I don't think he's anticipating his suffering. He weeps for those who will suffer. Those who will in a few days shout crucify him. He weeps because they do not recognize the time of the Lord's visitation, the time of God's coming to them. By the way, the time of the Lord's visitation, we see this in several translations in the ESV and the King James. But it's an expression we also find in the book of Ruth, which we read this past week in Ruth chapter 1, where Naomi is in Moab. And now she wants to go back home because she's heard that God has visited his people. God's visiting his people can be good and it can be bad. In Ruth, it is that God has returned in a sense and he is once again blessing his people. They were going, had gone through a famine and now the famine is gone. But there are also times when God comes in judgment. And what Jesus describes here will happen within 40 years when the Romans surround Jerusalem, build an embankment against it, and Jerusalem will be destroyed. Jesus does not weep for what he is about to suffer, but he weeps for the people who are there because they don't recognize what is going on. The question we have to ask ourselves here on Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, have we recognized the time of God's visitation? We love Easter, we rejoice at Easter, but do we walk through the days between now and then? Do we remember the suffering and ultimately the death of Jesus? Or do we want Easter to be made easy? Here we are at Palm Sunday and what are we to make of it? 
reminded the story of the acolyte uh, who was holding the cross before the procession on uh, Palm Sunday and he turned and said to the priest, I don't know what I'm supposed to be feeling. Because truly, on one hand, there is rejoicing, there is hosanna, the Savior has come. And yet in a few days, we will hear, crucify him. But more than that, we hear the crowds shouting hosanna, and Jesus weeps. On this day, there was joy and sorrow, there was rejoicing and there was anger. I don't know if you noticed But right before this event, in the verses that come before it, we have Jesus' last public parable, as Luke recounts it. In the Gospel of Matthew, it's called the parable of the talents. Here it's called the parable of the minas. And a mina is a coin representing three months' wages. So, like a talent, a significant amount of money. I've told you before, when we went through parables, Jesus spoke parables more than once, and so there would be differences, and here there are those differences. Uh, Not talents, but minas. But there's something else. Something frightening in this parable. Look at verse number 12. I won't read the whole parable because I think you're familiar with it. But in verse number 12, he said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. And then he gives out the minas. And in verse 14, But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. In a few days, the chief priest will say to Pilate, We have no king but Caesar. Pilate says, Here's your king. No, he's not our king. We don't want this man to be our king. And then the last verse of this parable in verse number 27. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, Bring them here and kill them in front of me. There is judgment. And on this Sunday, this Palm Sunday, Jesus stands with the prophetic tradition that God is angry with his people. But secondly, God will do something about it. He will, in fact, bring judgment. And on this Palm Sunday, our hearts are filled with joy. We think that Jesus has come and we are grateful for that. But we should remember that on this day, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And it should prepare us as we enter into a veil of tears in the coming days. When Jesus will be betrayed, he will be wrongly accused, put on trial, and ultimately scourged and crucified. Can't skip that part. But Holy Week begins with the tears of Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we enter into these serious days, we are reminded of what Jesus went through on our behalf. We are sometimes confused because of the hosannas of Palm Sunday And then later in the week, people cry and crucify him. But may we look to the Lord Jesus and his tears to guide us as he goes through his passion, as he willingly gives himself up for us. 
He is the King. He is the Savior. He is the sacrifice. May we keep these in our mind in the, weeks, in the days to come this week, this holy week. May we be grateful for what Jesus has given, that he has given his life to bring salvation. I thank you for bringing us together on this Palm Sunday to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.